Well, good morning. It's great to be here and to share in worship. And thank you to the worship team for leading us. Um, can you turn in your Bibles to the letter, the first letter of Peter? We've been in the, this letter of Peter for a while. Um, and we're progressing through it. So, Peter chapter 4, and I'm going to read the first seven verses. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with this same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil evil human human desires but rather for the will of God for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do living in debauchery lust drunkenness orgies carousing and detestable idolatry they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. You know, as we, uh, as we read through the, the letter of Peter, it's interesting to note that he uh, is quite enamoured with the, the, uh, the account of Noah and the flood. And uh, he refers to the fact that in Noah's time, um, there were extremely evil people, people that God had uh, regretted that he'd even made. And... Uh, God wished that he should have never made this man who had become so corrupt. And Jesus reminds us that in the time before he comes back, um, it's just going to be like in the days of Noah. There will be selfishness. There will be disregard for God. The foundations of home life, church life, national life, are breaking apart. Evil is chewing up the world and I don't have to remind you just what sort of a world we currently live in with all its disruptions, its wars, its pestilences and all those things that impact our lives. So the question this morning is, how do we respond as Christians to the world in which we live? And I guess one way is we can, um, we can march against it, we can agitate, we can demonstrate. Um, and that in itself is not necessarily bad. But is that the way that we can respond to evil? 
I'm going to suggest this morning that the response should be a response of holiness. That in this world of evil, as the world becomes more and more degenerate, the demand on us as Christians is to become more holy. So that in our holiness we can be a light to the world. In our holiness we can be an example to how life should be lived. And so if as God's people we are to live holy lives, what does that mean? Well, God says that we should be holy just as he is holy. And when I first read that, I looked at that and thought, no way, that's not possible. How can I ever be holy like God is holy? How do we live holy lives? Well, it has to do with those little things inside us that we call appetites or desires. We're all born with all sorts of desires and appetites that um, control our lives in a lot of ways. And the question is, how do we treat those? How do we deal with those desires, those inner appetites? Well, over through history, people have tried to do that in all sorts of different ways. And we can read back to um, the, uh, the, the ascetics in the first two or three centuries of the Christian church where in order to deal with the, the desires and those appetites that rise up within, they decided to withdraw from, from community. So they went and hid in caves or sat on poles in the desert, did all sorts of weird things in order that they didn't um, give in to those desires, that they didn't have the temptations from outside that would cause them to, um, to sin. The only problem with that, it didn't really work because those desires, those appetites are inner things. They're not outside things. And so if you go and sit on a pole in the desert, you've still got all your desires and your, and your appetites uh, demanding attention in your life. Peter, in this little passage that we've read this morning, has listed some of the things, some of those appetites that the pagan world, the non-Christian world, gives into daily um, for argument's sake, living in debauchery or licentiousness, which is indulging the senses to excess. Um, lust, desiring things that are forbidden. And it's not just, lust is not just things uh, to deal with sexual things, but we can lust after uh, money, after um, our neighbour's um, yacht or tinny, um, <laughs> depending on how wealthy he is. Uh, 
we can lust after all sorts of things, but it's desiring those things that are forbidden, that are not ours. Drunkenness and excessive indulgence in a strong drink. Orgies, wild, immoral, drunken festivals. Carousing, drinking parties, binge parties and unlawful idolatries, all those things that get between us and God. As we review this list, perhaps we can give ourselves a bit of a pat on the back and say, well, none of those things apply to me. I've not been involved in any wild orgies lately. Um, I've not uh, um, been caught uh, drunk And so you give yourself a bit of a pat on the back. But by not doing those, is that holy living? Is it just simply not doing things to excess? Is it simply um, keeping out of the excesses of life? Is that what holiness is? Or perhaps we look at ourselves and think, sure, I don't go to the excesses, but I still have within me that uh, little um, thought that that jumps up for argument's sake. Um, We have this inbuilt desire to eat. And that in itself is not bad. That can be good. If it, if it encourages, if it forces us to eat healthily and keep our bodies healthy, it only becomes a problem when we give in to that desire in excess. And so we might say, well, yeah, I'm still um, tempted by overeating, overdrinking, um, lust after a woman, all those things, they're there. Um, so is holiness then an impossible dream? Is it something that is unattainable? I believe the key to holiness is found in the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. You see, the appetites and, and desires that we have, both physical and emotional, are natural and God-given. But it's how we deal with them that determines whether they're holy or whether we're sinful. They can be gratified immorally, which leads us into great evil, or they can be fulfilled appropriately, which is good. Either we give in to our desires and please ourselves, or we determine in what way we can please God and show love to God through Christ in the way that we respond to our desires. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind. And so as we deal with 
moment by moment, day by day life, the overriding consideration should be how does what I do, how does what I, how does how I respond, show love to God. Having love for God should be the motive for all of our actions. How do we react if somebody cuts us off on the freeway? Do we react in anger? Or do we say, Lord, how can this show love to you? How can I respond in a way which honours you? You know, it's sort of easy to, to say, yeah, this is how we should respond. Every time we've, our buttons are pushed, we should be looking, how can I, make, how can I change this so that God is, is glorified in my actions and my thoughts? It's very easy to say it. It's not so easy to do. We do have the Holy Spirit within us to help us. But even with the Holy Spirit, we, we, we still have that ability to override the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our life. So how do we know that we're progressing in this ability to switch from reacting selfishly to reacting in a way that shows our love for God. And Peter seems to suggest that the way we find out how well we're doing is how we react to suffering. Suffering is a means by which we know how well we're doing in living a holy life. There's two sorts of suffering. Suffering that we inflict on ourselves when we deliberately sin. And we receive the consequences of sin in our lives. That's one, and that certainly tells us we've failed, we've missed the, the, the opportunity. It certainly reminds us that it's a time to repent and get right with God. But what if we suffer for doing right? What if we suffer because of our faith? I think that that suffering is also an indicator of just how much we love God, just how much our, our centre of gravity, in a sense, has moved from self to wanting to please God. Difficult situations help us to confirm our, that our, our love is coming out of a love motive. Our actions are being driven because we want to show our love to God. Our desire to please Christ needs to be used, it needs to be expressed, needs to be able to function, and unless we put it into practice, we have no way of knowing whether it's real or not, and suffering helps us to remind us to put into practice our, uh, how we're responding in love. And so therefore, 
We should welcome suffering as an occasion to reconfirm our motive to love Christ. Or in, in other words, as the Apostle Paul writes, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Glorying in suffering. It's not implying that we should go and look for, for suffering or that we should inflict suffering on ourselves. There, there's nothing intrinsically good or, or honourable in suffering. It's how suffering reminds us how much we love God. So if success in living a holy life is dependent on our loving God, how can we do it? This self-centred I, this self-centred me, is so powerful, so ingrained, that it controls me exclusively, controls you exclusively. We know we must surrender to the, to the or surrender the immoral, egotistical motive to the higher motive of loving God. But we cannot love God enough to replace the self-centered love simply because we love ourselves too much to allow place for a God-centered love. That's the battle. That's the struggle. And obviously we need divine help in that. That as we allow the Holy Spirit to function in our lives, you know, we, we kind of would love to be sort of, I don't know, zapped with the Holy Spirit, that all of a sudden our self-centeredness disappears completely and we are totally focused on loving God. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And one day it'll be true, um, but it's not true in this life. We don't get zapped. But what happens is that every time there's an opportunity, every time there's a choice to serve ourselves or to serve God, to love ourselves or to love God, every time there's that choice, every time we make the choice to love God, to subjugate our own self, then the choice becomes easier. But I don't want to suggest that this is simply an exercise in choice that we make for ourselves. Because if it was just simply a choice based on, here comes a thought, how do I choose to deal with it? If it's just simply that, it just becomes again all about me, of how good I am of switching my thoughts. And ultimately, you fail in that question as, do I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with every fibre of my being? The secret is to know Christ, 
to know Christ in an intimate way because the one we love is the one we serve. Our desire to please Christ is born out of a relationship with him, a relationship that moves us from the old self-centeredness to a Christ-centeredness. It's a lifestyle, a life that's not without cost because commitment to Christ means abandonment to self. It means not just loving Christ but giving ourselves completely to him in love. It means developing that relationship that we can only develop if we're meeting with Jesus daily, if Jesus is walking with us. I remember way back in my youth days, a youth leader we had, um, yeah, I guess she was a middle-aged lady. She seemed old to us then. Um, But she used to talk to Jesus all the time, out loud. She shared with Jesus the washing up and ironing and making the beds and doing the shopping and she talked with Jesus all the time. It's that sort of close relationship that we need to develop with Christ, that Christ becomes our companion, our our focus, our love. Because it's out of that love that we can then begin to make that switch between self-centeredness and Christ-centeredness. A poet once wrote, My goal is God himself, not joy, nor peace, nor even blessing, but himself. My God, tis his to lead me there, not mine, but his At any cost, dear Lord, by any road. Are you and I willing to say to Jesus, at any cost, by any road, take me, Lord, where you need, where I can be holy and committed to you? So, in conclusion, Jesus is coming. And I believe his return is soon. So then what should be our conduct and our lifestyle as as Christians in the light of the return of Christ? We must be holy people. Pleasing Jesus because we love him. We must develop our relationship with Jesus through word and in prayer. We must demonstrate love by doing those things that please Jesus, showing hospitality, using our talents wisely, giving to the poor, feeding the hungry, protecting the needy, and anything else that Jesus tells us to do. Being holy is to make our lives count for God, to please God now, but ultimately in the judgment when we stand before God on that judgment day and Jesus says to us, well done, 
good and faithful servant. Because that is when we know we've been holy. Just like the Old Testament heroes mentioned in the book of Hebrews, to whom Jesus proclaimed the victory which they had anticipated, we will declare righteous, be declared righteous on the day of judgment. And what a wonderful objective to look forward to. So the challenge this morning is how you lead in your life. Are you leading a holy life? Is God the focus of everything that you do? That's the challenge. That's where we need to be heading as this world becomes more and more anti-God and all that he stands for. We're going to go now into a, a time of sharing around communion table you know Jesus lived a holy life why because everything that he did everything that he said was to please his father and ultimately that meant being obedient to the cross of allowing sinful men to take hold of his body and nail it to a cross. To take on him, on his sinless body, all the sin that is associated and pertains to us. There he shed his blood and gave his life. Why? Because he loved us. Because he was obedient to his father. Because that was what was necessary to appease the wrath of God. And because of what Jesus did, we have that opportunity to accept his death and resurrection. We have that wonderful um, privilege of being able to come before God, not because we've done anything, not because of any merit on our behalf, but because Jesus has shared his life with us. And so we come and we share, we take the bread and the cup and we remember what God has done for us and we give thanks for his grace normally we sing or have a song or something but I'm going to ask you this morning just to stand and as you come past and take you stand thank you yes stand as you come past take a piece of biscuit and a and a cup I want you to think quietly and meditate on what God what these elements mean and what God has done for you and for me And give him thanks. Let's just come past. And when we've all received, um, uh, we'll all eat and drink together.
For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. and When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's eat and drink together. Almighty God, we hear the call to be holy as you are holy. And we confess this morning that so often our self takes over and we become Lord of our own lives. We thank you, Lord, that in your grace and your mercy you have made a way where we can swap our sinful life for your righteous life. That we can be called righteous because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given to us the Holy Spirit to indwell us and empower us so that we can live holy lives. And so we pray this morning that, Lord, you would give us that strength, give us that resolve, that, Lord, in everything we might demonstrate that we love you with all our hearts, with all our minds, all our souls, with everything that we have. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be such a witness in the world that our righteousness will show up the evil, show up the wickedness of people so that they will they will see a way of getting out of their their sin and their, their the, the slavery that they're in and find a way of reaching out to you because we are showing the way. We are being light and life in the world. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We ask that you would use us in your kingdom. And now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through may your whole spirit soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our lord jesus christ amen god bless you go in peace if anybody needs prayer we have uh, some people um, appointed who will come pray with you if you come and sit down the front or if you need to talk about something feel free to talk with Um, anyone through the through the morning as you have morning tea